This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Last Sunday, I, I, I took a break from the book of Acts and, uh, and, and went a little different direction. And, uh, and so I want to go back to the book of Acts today. Actually, uh, for the 8 o'clock service, it was not quite a repeat, but we did go cover the same passage of Scripture with a little added on. So I'm in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Acts 18, verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public and by showing by the scriptures that Christ was the Lord or was Jesus, in verse, uh, chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So as we're looking at what's happening here, you have this, this movement following, or continued movement, following the second missionary journey of Paul as he has made his way back to Corinth, he has made his way back to Ephesus, and there are some interactions with individuals in certain cities. And one is a man that first becomes known to us in chapter 18 that we know historically now is a godly teacher, a godly preacher, a leader in the early church. His name is Apollos. You get a bit of a biography about him in the beginning part of the section that I read in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Apollos was a great speaker, very eloquent and very learned. And yet there was something missing here. If you're one that likes to take notes and you like to fill in those blanks and you want some points, here's the first one. It's pretty deep. You don't know what you don't know. Did you know that? All right. You don't, you don't know what you don't know. It sounds very uh, mundane, but there is actual truth, deep truth within this. Until you know something, until you have been exposed to some, some reality or some teachings, or until someone explains certain things, or maybe until you have a personal experience with certain items or certain things, and until you know, you just don't know. Now, it sounds like a silly statement, but there's a lot of truth there as you think about that, because there are, there are things that you know, and then there are things that you've never, never even heard of, you've never been exposed to. There would be no way for you to know about that. And so you're, you're, you're not necessarily guilty because you've never heard of it, but you've, you've never been made aware of certain things. Now, there is a great difference between not wanting to know about something or about hearing truth believing, or knowing because you have just not, not heard, not believing because you've just not heard. 
Now, last week at 8 o'clock, I, I preached a sermon focusing on the character in Scripture we know, as I mentioned, named Apollos. Apollos was a godly man, a great orator. He was a student of Scripture, meaning a student of the Old Testament, especially at that time, since we're living through the New Testament through this narrative. He sought to honor God by going into the synagogues, not unlike Paul would do, and he would engage his fellow Jews with Torah debates, as he would. He would be explaining the message of the, the coming message for the need of repentance of sin. He had been trained by John the baptizer, for he was a disciple of John. And as he would teach, he was one who was draw a crowd because of the way he spoke and the and the messages that he gave. And yet, there was something missing in his messages. It was these disciples that we are reintroduced to here, this husband and wife couple who had spent time with Paul the Apostle, fellow tent makers. You see them listed as Aquila and Priscilla. You see them here as Priscilla and Aquila. They are together as one, united in marriage, husband and wife, focused fully as individuals and together in that union of, of, of the marriage, the holy matrimony focused on serving God together. So they hear Apollos speaking. They, they hear him debating. They hear what he is saying. He's even talking about Christ. But he doesn't have a full understanding of who Christ is. But in their listening to them, they, they like what he has to say, but you can kind of just, just picture them looking to each other going, well, that was a great message. That was a great sermon. But very important that was missing. Paulus preached about the works of Christ, those that he had heard of. But he had never put the connection that Christ, Jesus, was the Christ. Let me, let me make sure I clarify that. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Mary and Joseph Christ did not have a boy named Jesus. Christ is a title. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. Apollos is a student of Scripture, and he is, he is going through the prophecies, and he's talking about the coming Christ. But even in knowing of the miracles that Jesus had done, at least as we are reading here, that Jesus is the Christ. So when Aquila and Priscilla hear him speaking, they're going, it's like he almost gets it, but he's not quite there. He's got a great commentary, a great message. A, it's a wonderful TED Talk. It's just not a sermon because Christ is absent in the message. So these two, Aquila and Priscilla, take the preacher aside. And they tell him of the baptism of Jesus, that John, the man that Apollos has actually modeled his ministry after the baptism of Christ that John led him through by the Holy Spirit's guidance and the fulfillment of Scripture through Jesus alone. You can imagine the surprise to Apollos when he realized that. It's almost like finding that missing piece to the puzzle you've been looking for. And you put it in, you go, oh, there it is. It makes so much sense. It's one of those this is a generational statement, right? One of those V8 moments where you hit your head and you go, oh, now I get it. But he didn't know what he didn't know. 
He didn't know that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't put together that Christ was the fulfillment of all those prophecies. He didn't apparently know about the baptism of Christ and what that represented. If he did, he didn't connect it clearly. There was something missing in what he had been told. And therefore, he didn't know what he didn't know, so someone had to tell him. And to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I, I, I love the character illustrated by Priscilla and Aquila here. These are people that are in the, they would be in that, that Barnabas club, the encouraging ones. The disciples who come alongside others and provide for resources and provide for the preachers and, and, and give them encouraging words. That's the Priscilla and Aquila that you see here and how you see that illustrated is it's so foreign from what you often see today in the evangelical American world that we live in. Because Priscilla and Aquila apparently did not define themselves as the gospel police, as the heretic hunters, as the ones that would stand up publicly in the midst of the crowd and say, Apollos, you're totally wrong in what you're teaching. Now, what did they do? They took him aside and they said, Apollos, have you not heard of the baptism of Christ? Are you not aware that he is the fulfillment of all those prophecies? Have you not heard of the resurrection? See, and, and, there, there's far too many today who would get on Twitter or on social media or write a blog post or do an interview somewhere on YouTube or even on television to decry the heresies in the world. And there are people that should be doing that because there's a lot of heresies out there. But let's just have a few more Priscilla and Aquilas out there who would pull someone aside who says, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and I'm just going to ask you, have you never heard? And when Apollos is like, I, I have never heard this, then they say, well, let us tell you about it. And we hear later of Apollos' ministry. Well, thank God for the Priscilla's and Aquila's that come alongside and pull aside those that aren't quite fully complete in their understanding of the doctrines of God and express it to them in a way that's loving and encouraging. There are a lot of Christians out there, or there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians out there that apparently their spiritual gift is hatefulness and arrogance. And some just want to be spiritual bullies to tear everyone else down as best they can. Now, there are heretics out there, and they always have been. They need to be addressed, but that's not who Apollos was. Apollos was a brother, or would be, and became one. But Apollos didn't know what he didn't know. So God brought along somebody that knew, so they could tell him the truth. The second thing that I notice here is that you, don't, you won't know until you're told. Look at the passage again. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, now we're in chapter 19 here, right? There, Paul found some disciples. I find this interesting because it's the word disciples. And when we hear disciples in the Bible, we often think Christians, but they're not Christians. And sometimes our, our, our dictionaries are a little messed up. People think that if you're a disciple, you're a Christian. You can be a disciple of anybody. If you're mentored by anybody, you're their disciple. I mean, so these are disciples. Now, who are they disciples of? By their own definition and their own estimation, they're disciples of God. But they are a lot more like Apollos than they would even realize. It says that they go to Ephesus, they find the disciples there, and Paul said to them, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And I love this answer. No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? He said, and to what then were you? And they said, 
baptism. You know, John the baptizer. He was dunking a whole bunch of people. Symbolic of the repentance of their sin. I don't know that often, even in our Baptist churches, we have those conversations. I think there's a lot of, maybe we need to go back to our VBS and our early Sunday school to kind of explain the difference in the baptism of John and the baptism after John meets Christ and what it represents as a Christian. It's not the same. I mean, Jesus didn't ask himself into his own heart and then got baptized by John. But there is, there is much there. And all these people knew was the baptism of John. And John. Because that's a Jewish custom. The mikvah ba- baptisms, the mikvah bathings that would take place before you would go into temple or before you would go into the ritual holy sites in the Jewish world. If John is your teacher, if his voice crawling out from the wilderness has gathered the crowds, as the scripture says in the gospel accounts, then many were being baptized because they'd heard him teach in a way they'd not heard before. They'd grown up in the aspects of the synagogue, and now they're being baptized in the name of John. This is why when Christ is baptized, and at the Great Commission, it is stated very clearly that our commission is to baptize in the name of our teacher, our Savior, our Lord, not some random pastor or prophet or just another human, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a carryover from that old Jewish teaching. But these disciples... They only knew the baptism of John. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. And that is Jesus. It's like the revelatory thing. There's this Jesus guy that came. It's like you read the the first book in the trilogy, but you didn't get to the rest of it. There's more to the story. David, or Donald Barnhouse is a writer. He put a book together many years ago full of anecdotes and illustrations, and he tells one story that I found interesting. It's centered on a group of pioneers, pioneers and colonists here in America in the late 18th century, mid to late 18th century. So these colonists, these American colonists there were were in the Virginia colony, and they decided to go west, and so they went west. We can't even fathom that. I mean, this dangerous journey from the colonies near the coast, western into the deep recesses of this continent, places like, you know, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, places where no one lived except Native Americans. No colonists had ever been there. And they just kept moving further. And so they endeavored to go into the, over the mountains, through the valleys, into these areas to just claim the land and settle it. There's a whole lot of debate about colonization nowadays, but this is apparently a true story of these that went that way. They were totally disconnected from their fellow colonists for many years, for at least two decades. If you can imagine that. I mean, we live in an interconnected society that is so interconnected that even right now you have phones that some of you are getting messages, you're answering in the midst of the sermon, you're checking this, you're checking your email. We're, we're, we're doing so many things at one time right now. Some are at home. And you're watching us on YouTube or on Facebook while you got three other windows open on your computer or your television. I know that. I only know that because that's how I do it. Right? And if you could, you would hit the 1.5 button on this sermon video. 
that allows it to go a lot quicker than it normally goes. That's how I watch things after they're recorded at a time and a half. They all sound like chipmunks, but you can get through it a lot quicker. Now, yesterday, uh, September 11th, 20th anniversary. In 2001, that event, when those towers were hit, when the Pentagon was hit, when Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and United 93, became the most watched live event in the history of our world. It connected everybody in a way we'd never quite been connected before. And we saw tragedy and death and all that comes with that. And we saw some great heroism as well. Well, just think about the connectivity. Prior to that, perhaps the only time that would even, doesn't even compare. It's like barely, barely even is, is indicative of this. But the only other time where the majority of the world or the majority of Americans or a large percentage saw a, a death take place on screen was when Lee Harvey Oswald was shot. And I mean, I'm with you, and I wasn't even alive when that happened. But the connectivity, it's like immediate. Everybody, we, we can know right now what's happening on the other side of the planet. We can know it through news reports, or, or I could just text a friend. It's the strangest thing in the world, right? Hey, I know it's like in the middle of the night over there. What are you doing? But I can find out. They can say, I'm waking up answering your text. That's what they would tell me today. It's immediate. So imagine late 18th century, colonies, colonists who have moved into the, to the, to the inner part of the continent here, separated from family and friends, colonists for at least two decades. They hadn't seen another white man for 20 years. They were disconnected. They had primary concerns. Their concerns were their physical health and the health of their children, for there were no hospitals nearby. And there was, there was you know, the closest one is what, a, a four-day ride. They were concerned about the health of their animals, their horses, their oxen, anybody, any other wagons and their tools and their protection from those that lived there long before they showed up. Eventually, what happened, though, according to this story, another group of travelers and colonists made their way in, or travelers made their way to them, others who had come from Virginia. And there was talk and reconnection once they realized, oh, you're from the Virginia colony, so were we, this, that, and the other. And the people who showed up, the travelers showed up, asked them, those who had been in the wilderness for so long, Continental Congress. The reply was, we have not so much as heard of a Continental Congress. What is that? And what republic are you speaking of? For we are loyal subjects of the king, the king of England. They had no idea all that had taken place in the previous 20 years. They had no idea of anything known as a Boston Tea Party, of Paul Revere and his ride. They didn't know of Samuel Adams or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson or any of those in their stories. They, much less, had never heard of the, the stories of General George Washington, and who would eventually become the president. They were shocked to hear all of these things, and they were not quite sure they believed them all, if you can even imagine. But those that showed up told them all that had transpired. They gave them an American history class that to them, everybody knew about except for those they had just encountered. They did not know what they did not know and they did not know until someone told them. 
not unlike those disciples in Ephesus who did not know that Christ They were not unlike Apollos, these Ephesians, who, by the way, are in Ephesus is the place, one of the places where Paul was not allowed to go prior, as we read that, as the Lord stopped him and sent him to Macedonia. But now he is there, and he's there with a message. They had not heard of the baptism of Christ. They had not heard of the resurrection. They had no idea of who the Holy Spirit was and what he, his role was. They didn't know of the miracle of Pentecost much less the story of the cross. So just as Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside and, and explained to them him the truth and the fullness of the gospel, so too did Paul tell these Ephesians. Paul preached Christ. He couldn't put it off. He wouldn't put it off. Here's the thing about the Ephesians. I don't know if you caught this. They were disciples. They were Jewish Ephesians who had been dispersed. Much like Apollos, they were almost saved. Now I want you to think about your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your club members. How many people do you encounter on a regular basis that if you could categorize them this way, you would? They're almost saved. Almost saved. You know what almost saved is a synonym for? Totally lost. They're the same words. That good old boy, that neighbor, that person, that nice person, that person went to church, they're almost saved. You can be baptized and be almost saved. You can be a church member and be almost saved. Brother and sister, friend, I won't call you brother and sister, I'll call you friend because you're not my brother and sister. The almost saved is the same as totally lost. I got a friend of mine who is a brother who is a missionary in Ireland. His name is Wallace. Wallace and uh, his wife have served in Ireland for a number of years with the International Mission Board. They were partners with John Robinson and our Lingue Christi team for quite some time. And what we did two or three weeks ago on our Wednesday nights is we did the Bible story in a narrative form with the five questions at the end where we read a story in narrative and then we ask those questions. What'd you like about the story? What'd you not like about the story? What does this story tell you about God? What does this story tell you about people? And how in the world would you ever remember this story to tell anybody else? Simple five questions, the most non-threatening way to present a Bible story ever. Well, I learned that from Wallace. Wallace tells me when he was living on the western side of Ireland, not necessarily where he is now in Dublin, but when he was over there, he was working. You get through the, uh, you know, the, 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 green, the green beer and everything else you might know about him, but nonetheless, there's a lot more to know about Ireland than that and Blarney Stones, all right? So when you get outside of Dublin, you get to some of the rural areas, they're not speaking English, they're speaking Gaelic Irish. And the gospel is needed in those areas, but this is interesting. You may be aware of this, but Ireland is full of churches. It's a very Catholic nation. And um, the conversations that, that our missionary friend was telling us, that he would in, they would invite friends over to have dinner. And they had to engage in conversations in a very, not, not a bait and switch, very clear that it was a Bible conversation. But you couldn't stand on the street corner and open the word and preach the word. It's just not going to work. You're definitely not going to work in Ireland. You'd be kicked out at that point. 
So they'd have folks come over and they would start with these narrative conversations of the gospel and they would tell the stories and they would start with Jesus is born, this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes the kids would act it out. It was a lot of fun. Then they would ask five questions. What would you like about the story? What would you not like about the story? What would you say about God? Say about man. How are you going to remember this? Then they would get to the next story. Here's Jesus 12. Same question. He's baptized. Same question. So you just all work all the way through the gospel. Let me just go ahead and say, you ought to be doing this in your own home with your neighbors. I don't know if you or your kids. This is, this is, this is like living on mission right now. But here's what was happening. Their friends would come over and engage in dinner and they would have the conversation, they would do the story and they would, they would have a lot of debate over these things. And then it would get to a point where he said, they got really angry. And the reason they got angry is when they got to the point where Jesus was crucified, the anger welled up within the listeners where they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They killed him? Yeah, yeah, they, they, they killed Jesus. They put it, Why? He didn't deserve to die. This came out. He said they asked the questions, and more they talked, finally it was, wait a minute. You mean, you mean that guy hanging on the cross in all the churches that we grew up in and that are all just about on every street corner in these towns, that, that statue over there, that, that, that eloquent-looking guy hanging on the cross, that's who we've been talking about? You mean he's real? From adults who grew up going to church and going to mass and memorizing and doing and all confirm whatever you had to do, never occurred that that guy on a cross was a real person. And the person we've been talking about is the real person that, that, that that's really the story. Sometimes we presume that everybody knows. But in the second most Catholic nation on the planet, I'm going to give Italy as number one. You have many who look at the cathedrals and see the buildings and they're beautiful and the stained glass and the crosses and the architecture and the ornate and they've never connected the dots that that guy's a real guy. You don't know what you don't know and you won't know until someone tells you. See, life change happens when the gospel is expressed and when we presume that everybody knows. Listen, we live in the deep south, but the deep south, whatever facade or lie of Bible belt you grew up believing, it wasn't true then and it ain't true now. There's a whole... Couldn't figure out the story of the gospel if they had to. And you know it. And you're near them, and you may be related to them, and you may be them. But there's a huge difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. There's a whole lot of people in hell that know all about Jesus. Because the only ones that know Jesus. I'll put it this way. The only ones that go to heaven are the ones Jesus knows. So there's a big difference here. What was happening in Ephesus was Paul wakes up and says, or goes in and says, have you never, how, you don't know about the Holy Spirit? How can you not know about the Holy Spirit? Well, how can we know if no one told us? Well, I just presumed everybody knew about the Holy Spirit. You're doing godly things and you're a disciple, but you don't know about the Holy Spirit. They said, we have not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecost is a holiday. It's a special day on the calendar. I get that. But 
But there are actually four, there's the Pentecost moment next too, but there's like three other mini Pentecosts that happen in the book of Acts. Not necessarily on that holiday, but the same thing takes place. The Holy Spirit movement upon people. Here's what happens in Acts 2. The Jewish believers have the Holy Spirit come upon them at the day of Pentecost. It's a major moment. Peter is preaching. That many are saying, I mean, it's just unbelievable what takes place in Acts 2. Then in Acts chapter 8, you have Philip talking to Samaritans. And from a Jewish perspective, Samaritans are just a little bit or a lot of bit lower than dogs. But Philip preaches and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans. And they have the Holy Spirit upon them, and they are rescued, they are redeemed, those that are there. There's a mini Pentecost moment that takes place. Then you have in Acts chapter 10, Peter again goes to Cornelius, the Gentiles, and he brings the message of God, and the Holy Spirit now falls upon the Gentiles. And then you have Acts chapter 19, and you have Paul the apostle going to Ephesus, and in the city of Ephesus are Jewish people who have been dispersed who are now in Ephesus, and they have just enough. They have, it's like they have a few pages, but they don't have the whole book, and they've not heard all that took place in Jerusalem. And so Paul has been brought there to explain the rest of the story, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and another Pentecost takes place. The response was similar in each case, an overwhelming relief and joy through the presence of the Holy Spirit, a manifestation of praise through various languages and tongues, tears, prophesying, worship. Now, we read this, and we get really confused. But consider this. When Paul enters into this city, and he meets the group that are known as disciples by the word that Luke used there, these are people that declared to be following God, but they were missing something instrumental. So Paul notices that, and the Spirit it works within Paul where he's He's like, these are really nice people. These are my people. These are Jewish people. These are folks I'm here to talk to. But as he's hearing them talk, and maybe you've had this experience with others, you're listening to them and you're like, it's like, it's like, it's like there's a piece, there's something wrong. Something's not quite right. And so he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they, here's the question, how did Paul know to ask that? Here's the follow-up question. What did Paul not see in them? that led him to go, time out. Do you guys have the Holy Spirit? Some would say it's because they were not doing miracles and healings, perhaps, not likely. The gifting of the Holy Spirit is revealed in different ways to different believers, as we can tell by the extensive of spiritual gifts as so what Paul is noticing in these who are called disciples is an absence of something deeper that must be revealed externally. Now let me tell you what, what I mean by that. Alexander McLaren was a 19th century Baptist pastor and he addresses it so clearly, so I'll just read his quote. The question suggests, though indirectly, that the signs of the Spirit's present, presence are sadly absent in many professing Christians. Paul asked it in wonder. Modern churches he would probably have to ask it once more. Possibly, he looked for the visible tokens and powers of miracle working and the like. But these were temporary accidents, and the permanent manifestations are holiness, consciousness of sonship, God-directed longings, religious illumination, and victory over the flesh, 
These are the things that should be obvious in those who claim to be disciples. They will be if the Holy Spirit is not quenched within them. And unless they are, what sign of being Christians do we present? It reminds me of that old question that I heard growing up as revivalists would come to our church and pastors would speak. And I don't know if they, had, they developed this question because they were fans of watching legal dramas and Perry Mason or whatever on TV, but they would ask something such like this. If you... We're on trial for being a Christian. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's what McLaren is saying. That's what Paul is recognizing. As he's looking, they're really good guys. They're nice people, but there's something missing. They look the part, but there's something missing. You won't know unless you're told what's missing. And lastly, you can't grow until you're truly known. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of books available online at Amazon, and if you can find a brick-and-mortar bookstore, you'll find a whole section titled Self-Help. Books, write a self-help book. You can get on the New York Times bestseller list if you get the right publisher, if you get the right person's face on the front. You, maybe you don't even need to be the writer. Just find a celebrity and be a ghostwriter for him because that is the number one, like you want to make it, that's the books that are going to be filling the, filling the shelf. Self-help, be in your best life, making it work for you. There are books, there are series, there are YouTube clips, movies, shows, insights from experts are all designed to help you grow. That's the marketing strategy to help you become the best you you can be to believe yourself to be self-aware, focused on your self-care, your healthy, strong, growing as a person lifestyle. Mantras and phrases so permeate our society today that the, the phrases that are all about self-care and me and my, it's become cultic. And it elevates the individual to a place of self-worship disguised Yet the clarity of the scriptures here and throughout the New Testament reveal a truth that I don't know that even many Christians would hold on to because I think we've been so infected by the words of the, of, of the enemy and the culture that we, we sometimes just bring those into the church and we baptize them a little bit and make them Christian. But you need to hold on to this truth, okay? There's no such thing as inner peace. It's a facade. It's Buddhist. It's New Age philosophy. It's what Hinduism, call it what you want, but inner peace is not a biblical reality. There is peace, but it cannot be ginned up by you making a better thought, by you uh, exercising in the right position, by you repeating a, a mantra or humming loudly, or by just waking up in the morning and saying, today I'm going to win. That's not enough for inner peace. The scripture says that peace is a gift given by the Prince of Peace. Peace comes from God. It's, it's not internally motivated. It, it's externally given. Inner peace is a facade. Self-care is a fruitless endeavor. Personal soul care and growth is not something that can be manufactured on its own. Even with the best of intentions, you and I will fall short if that's our goal. Because all of that is temporal. You cannot grow until you know, until you know the one who has pursued you. See, here's what I believe, and I know Scripture reveals this. God wants you to have peace. 
He just doesn't want you to fool yourself into thinking you can do it on your own. God wants you to have hope, but you can't make that up on your own. You cannot grow until you know, and you will not grow until you are known. Until you know the one who has pursued you and is pursuing you. Until you know the one who is the embodiment of the gospel, the good news itself. That the Holy Spirit always points to The Holy Spirit never points to himself. He's always pointing to Christ. Always. When Paul said, were you not baptized in the Holy Spirit? Did you not receive the Holy Spirit? We don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. Then you likely don't know who Christ is. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that's pointing us that way. Until you know Christ, and I mean really know Christ, not know of Christ, you will not grow into the person that God has created you to be. Now this continued narrative of how the movement of God's historic account, but we must make sure that it does not remain a historic account. Many today read it only as such and miss that what God has done, God still does, and what God still does, God will do. God calls all people to himself. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, dispersed Jews, black, white, brown, tan, European, African, Native American, Asian, South American, all people. Any other category you want to create? God's primary plan for world evangelism is exactly the same today as it's always been. His plan is that those that have been redeemed are the sent out ones sent out from his church so that we can tell others so they will know. The gospel is the good news and it is the good news of life and it is the life that is given and brought to the terminally ill and that's all of us. For we are all terminal. The gospel provides hope for the hopeless. The gospel gives meaning to a world that is defined as vanity of vanities. The gospel is good news. But as I've heard many times, it's really only good if you hear it in time. Thanks be to God you've heard it today. Which means you've heard it in time. But hearing it is just the first part. What are you doing with it after you hear it? See, God is calling you to respond, and he wants you to know. No longer can anyone that's on YouTube, Facebook, or in the building today say, well, I don't know what I don't know, because on this aspect, you know, because the word of God is clear. And since you know, what do you do with that? And since you now know, answer this question, are you known by God as a child of his? See, that's the great message of the gospel. And that means that no one's too far gone. If you are hearing this today, or if you're watching it later on on YouTube or Facebook, or if you're listening, dialed in, and you're listening to the sermon on that that telephone app we have where you can listen on your phone, you have heard the truth. How have you responded? Many of you have already said yes many years ago. But others of you are, are working through that even now, knowing that God is saying Say yes. Repentance of sin is required. Surrender to Christ and recognizing him as Savior. And we would love to talk to you more about that so you can have any questions you have answered.
But God does love you. And we love you. And I love you. We don't do what we do because we have to. We do what we do because we love our Lord. And we love you. And we love where we live today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for those that are able to hear the message. I pray that you will give us the wisdom and the courage to respond as needed. There are unsaved people, listen, are almost saved people in the room right now. There's likely someone watching online that in their own estimation, if I were to ask them, hey, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? They would say, well, I think so, or I hope so, not recognizing scripture says you can know so. Help them to know today what they did not know before the service began. Holy Spirit, draw people to yourself as you always have. Do in this room and online today what you did in Ephesus and Corinth. And may we see your family increase. To God be the glory. We ask.